You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Romans 11, beginning in verse 1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their tables become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and bend their backs forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing through the book of Romans. We've been walking through this book the entire calendar year 2021. And what we've discovered together is that Romans really is about the good news that God has formed a new humanity, one that's not based on race or gender or religious performance or social status or even political affiliation, but is based simply on faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. And it's about a life of fullness, a life of transformation that is available to us today as well. But with this good news of God's vast and widespread grace came some objections from the religious community. The religious community's got this knack for for objecting any time the grace of God is put on full display. Wait, 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 wait. Am I hearing you right here? And one of the objections that Paul is anticipating here is the question from the religious community, what about us? With all this talk about newness, with all this talk about what you're doing, what about us, the, the old ones, the old guard, the, the parts of your plan from before. And, and in God's plan to rescue throughout the world, have we lost our place in his plan? Has God rejected his people? Paul's short answer is what? No. No. And then he begins to really explore. He gives the short answer by no means, and then he begins to explore that answer. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage under, we're going to look at two themes, really. We're going to look at rejection, and then we're going to look at a remnant. And full disclosure, 
we are going to spend the majority of our time looking at that second point of the remnant, and then I will work through some application points for that. This is not going to be a typical sermon or kind of the typical flow or order that I typically preach a sermon. So we'll look first at rejection. Now, we've faced numerous natural disasters as a nation, but I think one that stands out in recent memory for many of us was Hurricane Katrina, where an estimated 1,800 people died as a result. But the phenomenal thing about the story of Hurricane Katrina is that number could have been a lot worse if it wasn't for a group called, and maybe you remember this, the Cajun Navy. Fishing boats, shrimp boats, pontoons, canoes, any dang boat that they could find, hundreds of volunteers showed up, you know, mullet-rocking Louisiana volunteers in whatever boat that they could find in order to rescue people, and they ended up rescuing over 10,000 people from the rising floods. Just volunteers cruising throughout the city. Now, the intriguing part of the story is that what they had to prepare for most was not severe weather conditions, it wasn't rising tides, it wasn't crazy things like alligators in the streets through the waters. What they had to prepare for most was human resistance. And as this Cajun Navy floated throughout the city, they came across many, many people that refused to be rescued, sometimes even violently opposed. Why? Some were scared of, you know, parting ways with all the things that they had built their, in their lifetime, all the things that they built their lives upon. Others were just untrusting. They didn't trust these, these rescuers. But by and large, I think for many of the people, they just simply had confidence in their own ability to survive on their own. I, I got this. For these people, it didn't matter how much pleading or reasoning these rescuers gave to them. They refused the gift of rescue only to, to face the rising toxic floods on their own, and many died. On the other hand, there were numerous people that were overjoyed to be rescued. They realized that they were on the cusp of death, and they gladly received being saved. And what this illustrates for us, this, this picture really illustrates how Paul describes the gospel of Jesus Christ being received among the first century Jews and Gentiles in Rome, the the, the typical religious group and the irreligious group. For many, uh, the religious, you know, really stood their ground. They were unwilling to part ways with all that they had built their lives upon, their own efforts, their religious experience, their zeal to do good, their zeal to obey God's word. Heck no, I'm not getting in the boat. I've got too much to lose here. I've built too much in my life. Or as verse 9 describes here, their bountiful table became to them a trap. A trap that made them think that all was well in their life. In other words, their religious assets became a liability. While many of the non-religious willingly abandoned their old life to step into the new. They repented of their sin. They believed in Jesus Christ. Heck yeah, I'm getting in the boat. I've got too much to gain not to. As Paul explains, at the end of the day, what delivers someone from sin and judgment and secures a life of freedom and righteousness is the willingness to abandon our own attempts to save and to place our trust in Jesus Christ. Like in the days of Noah, to get in the boat, to get into the refuge, to join 
God's people who are hidden safely within Jesus Christ. And so to the question of whether or not God has rejected his people, Israel, Paul assures his readers, by no means, absolutely not. God could never reject his own people. And Paul begins by explaining this. He says, let's, let's deal with the most obvious answer here. I'm a Jew. Like clearly God has loved and saved and rescued me. Clearly he has not rejected his people as a whole. In fact, we're told in the very previous uh, chapter in verse 21, but of Israel, God says, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Imagine those, those, that Cajun Navy, those rescuers in, in New Orleans, those, those rescuers pleading with the people, pleading with them to come to safety. Day after day after day, God beckoned Israel with opened arms. Like the parable of the prodigal son, not only does the father go out to greet the prodigal son, but also the older brother as well. God has not rejected his people. Instead, the opposite has happened. That those who thought that they were God's people because of their racial heritage and because of their religious efforts, they have actually rejected God. They have pushed God away. Here's what's going on. To stand on your own morality, to stand on your own religious efforts and goodness is in effect to reject God's grace. But to stand upon Jesus... To stand upon Jesus' righteousness is to receive his grace. Now, one of the main ways that Paul shows that God does not reject his people is by pointing to a remnant. And this is where we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time here. Let's look secondly at a remnant. Now, if you remember earlier in Romans, a remnant is a small leftover piece of something, piece of material. Think of cloth or some sort of artistic material. I remember from my days in floor covering, people would need hundreds, sometimes thousands of square yards of carpet or material. And my job as an estimator was to estimate for the appropriate amount of overage, considering strange cuts and angled walls, small installer mistakes and those sort of things. And if I did my job right, which wasn't all the time, but if, this is why I'm in pastoral ministry and not floor covering anymore. <laughs> if I did my job right, we'd have a small little piece called a remnant. And likewise, the people of God, us, we're referred to as a remnant. A remnant is not the biggest. A remnant is not the most valuable. A remnant is not the most desirable. It is the leftover pieces that most would throw away, and yet it is the peace that God, through his son Jesus Christ, purchases and cherishes forever. We see in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And it's not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you. I love that. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
It's not because you were the greatest. It's not because you were the brightest. In fact, you were the smallest, the most overlooked. And, then, and despite all of that, I have set my love upon you. Now, toward the end of the 20th century, even the evangelical Christians, particularly you know, predominant evangelical leaders in America, sought to establish something that was called the moral majority. I remember hearing about this as a child, but didn't really grasp what this was until later on in life, the moral majority. And the idea was to align the church, to align the Christian church with a specific political party in order to transform society from places of power, from sort of top down, taking Christian values, taking Christian morals, and then beginning to legislate them into the nation in order to bring change and usher in a new dispensation of the kingdom of God in a powerful way. You know, 30, 40 years later, how are we doing? But as we look at scripture, the vision of God's remnant isn't necessarily about becoming a moral majority. It's about becoming a loyal minority. Or some have called it actually a creative minority. A people stubbornly committed to God and and his word and his people seeking to transform society not from top down but from the bottom up in a grassroots sort of way through tight-knit relationships that are centered around living for God. And this is the pattern that we see throughout the Bible that God takes what is small and overlooked and then through that he displays his greatness in the world. In Mark chapter 4, and Jesus said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God and what parable shall we use? How can we describe the kingdom of God? I've got it. It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it's sown, grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can come nest in its shade. God works through the small. God works through the overlooked. And what that means is, don't be surprised when what God is doing is hidden in plain sight. Don't be surprised when you're like, I don't see God at work. That's because he works in the mustard seed kind of way. So Paul is focusing on this remnant, small, overlooked, seemingly insignificant remnant. And what he does is he illustrates this by pointing back in the Old Testament to an account that we, we've actually explored over the years as a church. It's found in 1 Kings 19. God had previously worked miraculously through a prophet named Elijah at this like great showdown of the gods where it was God, Yahweh God, Israel's God against, the, 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 against Baal and the idols of Baal. And the priests were gathered and they were doing everything they could do to call down fire. And yet Elijah, through prayer, you know, God sends down fire, and it makes much of the power of God, and it makes a mockery of these false idols, and this queen named Jezebel is angry. And as a result, she's put out a hit on Elijah, and Elijah darts. He runs, and he's running for his life. And what he does is he travels 40 days in the wilderness to the mount of God named Horeb, or as we know it from the Old Testament, Mount Sinai. He's running from the people, and he's running off to have this mountaintop experience with God. 
And imagine 40 days in the wilderness getting to God, and immediately God says to Elijah, Elijah, what are you doing here? Why, why did you come here? And Elijah begins his lament. Look with me in verse 3. Lord, let me tell you, paying, I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's going on in Israel, but uh, I'm your eyes and ears. And, uh, you know, they've killed your prophets. And they've demolished your altars. And I, and I alone, am left. And they seek my life. Everything's in ruins in Israel. I, I look around and I, I see people falling apart. It's all over. It's all done. I guess, I guess God, it's, it's just me now. Verse 4. But what is God's reply to him? When Elijah is tempted to believe that God is calling it quits on his people, that it's, you know, it's time to start fresh, something new, he assures Elijah that it actually is not over. Look at me at the, the, the last part of verse 4. God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You know, in other words, what God is saying here is all you see is breakdown and loss. And then what you think is, that must mean that it's all over. It's time to jump ship. It's time to go somewhere else. But what you don't see, Elijah, but what you don't see, Christian, is a faithful remnant that I have preserved. Go back. Return. I don't know why you're here. I'm sending you back. This helps us immensely today. Let's get honest for a second. This helps us immensely today as we look at the current state of the church in the West, which is a mess. When we see breakdown, when we see scandal, when we see spiritual abuse, when we see sexual abuse, when we see leaders walking away from the faith, when we see church attendance in decline, when we see and hear of our friends left and right deconstructing their faith and exploring all sorts of random spiritual expressions. Our modern version of Elijah that causes us to say, is this time to jump ship? Is it time to start something new? And yet the promise of a remnant gives us profound confidence. And it reminds us of some really important things. So some subpoints if you're taking notes. The first thing it reminds us of is God's purposes never fail. God's purposes never fail. Human failure is not God's failure. God is sovereign, and yet we as humanity are held responsible for our decisions. So what that means is that we give God all the glory for anything good that we see happening in and through the church, and then in turn, we take credit for all of the mess. It's a very simple equation. I see something good, I'm giving God glory. I see something falling apart, I'm gonna take credit for the sin. I'm gonna take credit for the mess. I'm gonna take credit for that failure. And in that paradox of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, what that allows us to do is to keep believing that God is at work, even when his people seem to be falling off the rails left and right. Even when the plot thickens, we can have hope. Why? Because we know how the story ends. It ends with God fulfilling every single one of his purposes. God's purpose never fails. Amen? I'm going to need you with, this, with me this morning. Secondly, God does not abandon his people. God does not abandon his people. Just because people reject God 
doesn't mean that God has rejected his people as a whole. This is one of Paul's main points right here. And what it means is that the evidence of God's commitment to us, the evidence of God's commitment to his church, can never be the current state of the church. Because if you choose to look at people in order to determine God's involvement, guess what? You're going to be constantly discouraged. And you're going to be constantly confused. And the reason is because the evidence of God's commitment to his people that he's going to fulfill every single one of his purposes among us is now and forever going to be the cross of Jesus Christ where the Son of God died and bled for us, where he atoned for our sins and purchased new life for us. This, as Paul has already been saying, is the timeless proof that God will never leave us and never forsake us. You look on the horizontal plane, you're going to see failure, you're going to see breakdown, and you're going to be tempted to believe God is done with this. But raise your sights, Christian, to the cross to see the timeless proof. God is forever invested. Amen? Number three, God is always working in ways that we can't see. Let me say it differently. The stats never tell the whole story. That news article, that most recent stat, that most recent story, that most recent whatever, it's not telling the whole story. Because like with Elijah, there's always more than can be measured. There's always more than we could observe with the human eye. No matter how dark the landscape gets, no matter how much loss or setbacks or failure we see and experience, we can rest assured that God is still at work. The future of the church is never like those movies where, you know, the future survival of the human race rests on one heroic character, that that person, he or she, surviving to the end and continuing it on. That was what Elijah was thinking. It's just me now, God. What are we going to do? God assures Elijah, you are absolutely dead wrong. Dead wrong. Throughout every generation, God is preserving a faithful remnant that will never, ever slip through his fingertips, that will never slip from his hands. And what we learn uh, here is that this remnant of God isn't just an Old Testament exclusively Jewish thing that God, you know, did in the past. But as Paul says in verse 5, so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So this was a bit of the controversy here, that God has a remnant that he's continuing throughout history and time, but as some people believed before, it is not determined by race. It's determined by grace. It's a remnant not made up of ethnic Israel, but it's a a remnant made up of true Israel, which are sons and daughters of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ. And the New Testament is really expanding the vision of this Old Testament idea. And what we begin to see is that God's design for his people has always been broader than originally thought. It includes the nations. That's what gives us hopes to, hope to pray for the nations. That's why we go into all the nations, because God's plan includes the nations. And so God sent his son Jesus to gather those who were near and those who were far to extend the hand of rescue in, in the rising floods of sin and judgment and to bring 
men and women into the refuge of God's family. And Paul says this is continuing today, so too at present time. And where we see this at work in Paul's present moment, which was the first century, is a moment we read about in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we're told that Paul was going into these various towns. He was sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with Jews and Gentiles. He was making disciples and he was planting churches. But as he would arrive in these various towns, he would have a very mixed welcome. And it says that in the town of Corinth, some received him very gladly. They repented and believed and were baptized. But at the same time, many mocked him. And they reviled him, and they totally rejected him. And what we read in Acts 18 is this. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city that are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So I think that this is wild. What God is saying in this vision is here's how, I, here's how you're going to know that I'm with you. And here's how you're going to have hope for your future here. My remnant. My remnant will be the proof that I'm with you. My remnant will be the proof that your future is bright here. The interesting thing is, as the Lord is saying this to Paul, the, the, this people that he's talking about weren't yet Christians. So, step back for just a second. Paul's entering into a town. He says, don't be afraid, I have many people here. But he's referring to people that aren't yet Christians. These are those who were chosen before the foundations of the world, but they hadn't yet been called to faith. They hadn't yet heard the gospel of Jesus. And so God is saying, I have many in the city. They just don't know it yet. They just don't know it yet. And here's the wild thing. I want you to participate in welcoming them home, in welcoming them in. And so what does this mean for us reality? It means a few things. It means first that God's remnant gives us boldness to share the gospel. What does God say to Paul? Keep speaking. Keep preaching the gospel. Do not be silent. Keep communicating the good news of Jesus Christ. Why? Why would Paul, in the midst of rejection, keep preaching? Because God says, I have many people here. I have people here prepared to listen. I have people here that I've softened their heart to receive the grace of your message that you're delivering. All you have to do is get that grace to them, and I'll do the work. This is really good news for us, and those of us who feel timidity when it comes to preaching the gospel. I can do this any Sunday out of the month, but get me next to my neighbors. Get me out of this context. I'm fumbling over my words. I'm getting nervous. I'm thinking, what are they going to think about me? Am I the weird neighbor now? I'm the guy who's pushing Christianity. I experience it too. But the good news is that our boldness doesn't come from our eloquence to speak. Our boldness doesn't come from our biblical knowledge. Our boldness doesn't even come from our perfect lives to back up this message. Our boldness comes from God's power and plan to save. That he's already determined who's going to be saved. We read of uh, earlier in Romans in chapter 10, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is what makes reality beautiful in the city around us. This is what makes this and other Christian witnesses in this city beautiful to an onlooking world. The proclamation, the bold proclamation of Christ and him crucified. Amen? Amen. Secondly, God's remnant is proof that no city is too far gone. God's remnant is proof that no city is too far gone. This was Paul's hope for Rome as he's writing to this church in the first century. We look back at Christian history and we actually see that this works. It was actually called the patient ferment of the early church that over the course of three or four centuries, Christians in Rome went from being a small, small, small persecuted minority to the state-instituted church. Patient, patient ferment. This was also the hope that Paul was given in the city of Corinth where he later on saw a city transformed and it's what gives us hope in our city as well. How do we know How can we know for certain that God desires to bring renewal to the city of Stockton and our surrounding areas? Don't overlook the simplicity here. The proof that God wants to bring renewal here is that his church is still here, that we're still here. I'm reminded of the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 where he begins to intercede with the Lord on behalf of a city that's going to be destroyed called Sodom. Please, Lord, do not destroy this city. And the Lord says to Abraham, okay, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous people in that city, I will spare the whole city for their sake. And Abraham's like, that's that's good, God, that's gracious. But since we're bargaining, how about 45? And God says, okay, 45. Oh, man, okay, I'm embarrassed to ask, Lord, but like, would you come down to 40? And the Lord's like, I'll do 40. Okay, this is getting awkward. But like 30, will you come down to 30? And the Lord says, I'll come down to 30. All right, well, since we're on a roll, um, how, about, how about 20? The Lord says, I'll come down to 20. For 20, I'll spare the city. And Abraham's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick myself for asking this. How about 10? 10. Will you, will you spare the city for 10? And the Lord says, you got a deal. You got a deal. And the profound thing about that is that 10 could change the entire outcome of an entire city. 10. As we look around, even as we look around in a room like this, we're reminded that there's hope for this place. There's hope for this city. And God is not done loving this place back to life. How do we know? Because he's called us here because he's called us here. Finally, God's remnant gives us courage to stay. God's remnant gives us courage to stay. The vision from God came when Paul was ready to leave. What we read of it previously in Acts is that he was rejected by the people in Corinth, and so he shook the dust off. In other words, he's saying, visually saying, I wash my hands of you, you reject me, I'm out of here. On to the next. I don't need you. I'll go somewhere that I'm received. And yet God comes to him in this vision. And God's promise of a remnant compels him to actually 
stay and to keep going. See, we often think that it takes courage to pack up and to go somewhere for God. And it does, don't get me wrong. But how much do we overlook the courage to stay? To stay in difficult places. It takes courage to stay in hard cities like Stockton. It takes courage to keep investing in the kingdom when it doesn't feel like it's doing any good. It takes courage to resist the siren calls of more conservative states where everyone looks, believes, and votes like us. It's not a sin to move, but we know from the story of Jonah, it is a sin to run. The remnant gives us courage to stay. And this is the courage that God provides through this promise of a remnant. What God is saying is that the future is bright because I have not abandoned this place. And, and you may not see it right now. You may look around like Elijah and you see breakdown. You see people rejecting God. You see people wilding out. You see things falling apart. But I've not abandoned this place. The future is bright because I placed you here. And I've invited you to see and experience the harvest as well. I've invited you into this Cajun Navy and all of our ragamuffin ways, extending the God's hand of rescue through the message of Jesus Christ. This morning, the fact that the gospel has come to us once again means that God extends his hand of grace to us today. It's grace that saves us. It's grace that sustains us. And it's grace that sends us back out into the mission of Jesus Christ. And the question is very clear. Will you reject it? Or will you receive it? Will you stand on your own? Or will you stand on Christ? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for... Uh...